will stand with me for the reading of God's Word before we jump into, or as we jump into text this morning. And the text for this morning is Matthew 5, Matthew 5, verse 17 through 20. Matthew 5, verse 17 through 20. Here's what Jesus says. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot, will pass from the law till all is accomplished. Therefore, Whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven." This is God's word that we're considering, that we're looking at this morning. You may be seated as we we stand. Just to remind you, we stand because we honor God's word. It's the truth of God's word that has authority over our lives. And that's why we we stand to read it. And it's interesting this morning as we, we come to this next section in the Sermon on the Mount... We talk about God's law. We talk about God's law. And, uh, you know, if you've been around Christianity for any length of time, can we go ahead and the lights up, please? It's a little dark in here. Thank you. I can see your faces now. Um, um, As we, we enter this section in the Sermon on the Mount, we're dealing with the issue of God's law, and specifically the Old Testament law. And it's already interesting because of the, uh, the setting of the Sermon on the Mount. Um, we talked about the setting of the Sermon on the Mount. We did an intro uh, study of it, and we said it's really talking about kingdom righteousness. What do Jesus' disciples, uh, what is the righteousness by which they're to be characterized by? You remember maybe in the introduction when we, we looked at this Sermon on the Mount, we quoted from Deuteronomy 18, verses 15 and following, where it says this, Deuteronomy 18.15, this is Moses speaking on behalf of God. Yahweh your God will raise up for you a prophet like me, like Moses, from among you, from your brothers. It is to him you shall listen, just as you desired of Yahweh your God at Horeb on the day of the assembly, when you said, Let me not hear again the voice of Yahweh my God, or see this great fire any more, lest I die. And Yahweh said to me, They are right in what they have spoken. I will raise up for them a prophet like you from among their brothers, and I will put my words in his mouth, and he shall speak to them all that I command him. And whoever will not listen to my words that he shall speak in my name, I myself will require it of him." And what's interesting, even in the giving of the first, uh, well, not even really the first law, but at least the Mosaic law, in the giving of that, you see the promise of someone like Moses coming to instruct Israel, to instruct God's people. And that's exactly what the Sermon on the Mount is, or at least part of that fulfillment of Jesus being the prophet like Moses. Uh, uh, And Moses is deliverer. He brought the people of Israel out of Egypt, but also lawgiver. And in a sense, what we've got here in the Sermon on the Mount, as remember we talked about how Jesus goes up the mountain, and that phrase that's used in Greek is, is used in the Old Testament of Moses going up the mountain to give the law. So we've got Jesus here, in a sense, giving his law. But that raises a question, both for Jesus' original audience and for us. What is Jesus' relationship to the Old Testament law? And by extension, what is his disciples' relationship to the Old Testament law? 
What is the Christian's relationship to the Old Testament law? No doubt, if you've been around Christianity for any length of time, you've heard a lot of different people say a lot of different things about that. And so this morning, we're going to go headlong and discuss the Christian's relationship to the law, because that's what exactly Jesus discusses in the text here. And why Jesus is doing this is uh, that we said that verses 3 through 16, the Beatitudes and then the salt and light metaphors, they're really introduction to the whole Sermon on the Mount. Really, the Beatitudes have talked about what does it look like to live the good life as Jesus' disciples? He's reprogrammed their minds to think about what does it look like in this life? His disciples are going to be afflicted as they pursue what? Righteousness. And as they perform righteousness. As they live righteous lives, they're going to be afflicted, they're going to be oppressed, but they can look forward to the future kingdom of heaven, the kingdom that is authorized by heaven, that is going to come, uh, that is sourced in heaven, that is going to be under Christ and displaying his rule over all the earth. And then, remember last week we talked about the salt and light. Uh, If that's the character of the disciples, if that's what the Beatitudes are supposed to do, well, then salt and light describes the mission. Character and mission, they go hand in hand as Jesus' disciples act in the world. And then what we said, and we said this in the introduction to the Sermon on the Mount, is that really, uh, verses 17 through 20, and then chapter 7, verse 12, they are function as bookends, for the main content of the sermon. Just like uh, a lot of uh, things that we compose, there's an introduction, uh, a a middle, a body, and a conclusion. And that middle, uh, what we're about to enter into now, has to deal with righteousness. And in the Jewish mindset, uh, in that day, in Jesus' audience, for his disciples, righteousness meant you were automatically talking about one thing. You were talking about the law. You were talking about the law. And really what we're going to see starting next week, we're going to start to see these kind of contrasts. Jesus is going to reference an Old Testament law, and then he's going to to talk about uh, how the disciples and even the crowds, remember primarily the the, the Sermon on the Mount is directed to the disciples and secondarily to the, the crowds, the interested crowds. We're not sure where their allegiance lies, but he's talking to his disciples first and foremost. And what he's going to do is he's going to look at an Old Testament law, and then he's going to talk about it, And then sometimes it's going to seem like he's almost undermining the law. And so to preface that whole teaching of what he's going to do, he gives this paragraph in chapter 5, verses 17 through 20. In a sense, he's disarming an objection that might be given to what he's going to say about things like anger and murder, lust and adultery, and those sorts of things. He's, He's prefacing this whole section so verses five, or chapter 5, verses 17 through 20 are a sort of introduction to the body itself. It gives the principle that is going to characterize a lot of what he's going to be talking about as we go through the sermon. And here's what I want you to do this morning. Since we're talking about the law and the Christian's relationship to the law and even to the Old Testament at large, you need to listen very very carefully. Uh, It is easy to get this wrong. It is hard to get it right. So you can be praying even as we walk through this. I hope you pray for me while I'm preaching sometimes. Uh, I I value that because Scripture is hard, and it's hard to get it right sometimes. And I want to get it right because I want to teach you what is in the Scriptures and nothing else. And so as we walk through this, though, I need you to pay close attention, and I also need you to be ready to ask me questions after service. So here we go. What is the big idea of this section that we just read? It is this. Do and teach God's law from the heart to be called great in the kingdom of heaven. That is where Jesus is going in this section, and that's where we're going and what we need to hear. Remember what we said about the Sermon on the Mount. It's not just for the original audience. It, by extension, with what we see in Matthew 28, 18 through 20, teach them all things I commanded you, and he commanded this, therefore it applies to us even among the nations, uh, we need to hear this, and it applies to us, and here's the main idea for the original disciples and for us, do and teach God's law from the heart to be called great in the kingdom of heaven. And there's really kind of two sections that we're going to look at. The first 
in verses 17 through 18, we need to see this, that you need to recognize the Old Testament's ongoing authority. You need to recognize the Old Testament's ongoing authority. Look at verse 17. Do not think, really what he's saying here, this is, this is almost, uh, if you were to kind of convey the original force, uh, don't even consider, don't even let it enter your mind is the force of what's being said here. Do not even consider, don't even let it enter your mind that I came to abolish the law or the prophets. Now, when he says the law and the prophets there, what you have to understand is that the Old Testament scriptures uh, had three main divisions. Uh, uh, They have uh, the law, the first five books of the Bible, the law of Moses, the Torah, uh, then you had the prophets, which would com- encompass everything from like uh, Joshua and Kings and Isaiah and Jeremiah and things like that. And then you had a third category called the writings, which started with the Psalms and had the Proverbs and things like this. But sometimes uh, to shorthand the expression, uh, you would refer to the whole Old Testament in Hebrew scriptures as the law and the prophets. You see this throughout the Gospels. Or even if you really, really wanted to shorthand it, you would just say the law. So what Jesus is talking about here is he's talking about the content of the whole Old Testament right? At least for right now, he's not immediately talking about uh, legislation. He's talking about the whole content of the Old Testament. In our English Bibles, everything from Genesis to Malachi, he's talking about all of that content. And he's saying, I didn't come to abolish them. I didn't come to tear them down. I didn't come to get rid of them, to undermine them. But what did I do? I have come, I've not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. Now that's significant language that we've already encountered in the book of Matthew, the language of fulfillment, of fulfillment. Remember, we've talked about this. In fact, that fulfillment language shows up a ton in chapters 1 through 4, and the context in which it shows up are uh, prophecies about Jesus. So, uh, Isaiah 7, 14, the virgin shall conceive and give birth to a son, and Jesus fulfills that. He actualizes that. He brings it up to full measure. But we've also seen patterns, uh, patterns uh, um, uh, like out of Egypt I called my son. Uh, Israel was called out of Egypt in an exodus. They will be called out again in a second exodus from exile. And Jesus recapitulates that pattern. He actualizes that pattern as because he's the king, and as the king, he embodies Israel. So that also, we've got predictions, we've got patterns, there's one more. Matthew 3.15, if you turn back at Jesus' baptism, remember what he said. John's like, don't, uh, I, I need to be baptized by you, what are you doing? And he says in 3.15, but Jesus answered him, Let it be so now, for thus it is fitting for us, Jesus and John, to fulfill all righteousness. And what we said at the time is what's going on in the baptism is it's the Father uh, uh, showing and displaying that he has authorized the Son on the messianic mission, on the suffering servant mission. He's given him the Spirit to rescue God's people from exile. And as part of that mission, even if you were to go back to Isaiah, you would see that part of that, the servant's mission is to make righteous God's people, to actualize all righteousness, to actualize all righteousness, which really connects with what's going on in the Sermon on the Mount. The Sermon on the Mount is kingdom righteousness, And so if we think about this idea of fulfillment, right, there's a lot. There's a lot of content in the Old Testament. There's predictions about Christ, but there's not just predictions about Christ. There's patterns that Christ fulfills, but there's not just even patterns that Christ fulfills. There is predictions about others, uh, about the righteousness that must be characterized of God's people, of Israel, and even the nations, the people the servant's going to rescue from exile, Really, if if you read the Old Testament, the Old Testament lays out all of history, It starts in the garden, and it prophesies what the end is going to look like. 
So really, this is amazing what Jesus is saying. He's saying, I came not to abolish, but to fulfill, meaning I'm going to actualize every bit of content that is prophesied, predicted, patterned, uh, or whatever, even ethical demands of righteousness, all of it. I am going to actualize them. Now, that's an astounding claim uh, of someone. Someone can't just make that claim. All the stuff that's in the Old Testament, I'm going to make it happen at every level. At every level, he is going to actualize it. So you can think about it like this. Jesus is the actualizer of all history. He's the fulfiller of all history. He's the one that's going to make it happen. So he's not coming to abolish the Old Testament, but to fulfill it. It still has authority. It still has significance. Now, here's what he does then in verse 18. He backs up what he just said. He backs up what he just said. That little word for gives support for what he just said. So I'm not going to abolish the law of the prophets. I'm going to fulfill them. For truly, I say to you. Now, he's really drawing your attention to this statement. Uh, He gets your attention with truly. He says, I say to you. He doesn't need to say that to say the content. He's highlighting what he's about to say. He's giving the support for why he came not to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot, will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Now let's break that down a little bit. What is he saying? Well, at core, what he's saying is the law isn't going to pass away. And by law, what he's talking about primarily at this point is not legal declarations, but content. He's, remember what we said, right? The law and the prophets, you could summarize the whole Old Testament. That's a shorthand way of referring to it. You could shorten it even more by saying the law, and people would know you're referring to the whole Old Testament. So he's still referring to the whole Old Testament in having ongoing significance, ongoing authority. And he gives two until statements to represent that ongoing authority. First, he says, until heaven and earth pass away. He's talking about the sky and the ground. So until those go away, the law won't pass away. Not an iota, not a dot. It's emphatic. The iota was just a little stroke. It almost looked like an eye without a dot on top in Greek. It, would, it was used to translate a, a Hebrew letter that looked like an apostrophe. The dot, uh, it'd be uh, like the smallest stroke of, not, not even a letter, but the smallest stroke to make a letter. It'd be like the, the difference between an R and a B, right? You need a little stroke to make it one into the other. That's what he's talking about here. So he's talking about content, and he's talking about the authority of that content. Now, the heaven, and, uh, what is he saying? He's, he's not focusing on what well, we know that God will recreate the new, uh, create a new heavens and a new earth. Right? We know that, but that's not what he's focusing on. He's saying, until the heaven and earth pass away. He's highlighting the durability of the content of the whole Testament. That's a, it's a way of speaking. You would see it in the Old Testament. It's like, this is in force forever. Basically, that's what he's saying. Right? He's focusing on the durability of the content to the smallest degree of the Old Testament. Not an iota, not a dot, will pass from the law. Then he gives us a second until, until all, and literally, it's all things happen. I think it's a better way of expressing it. Until all things happen. What all things? Well, everything that is prophesied or predicted to happen in the Old Testament. Like we said, it lays out all of human history, really, in the Old Testament. Until all of that happens, the law is in force. The Old Testament is in force. It has ongoing authority and significance. So if it has ongoing authority and significance, because God wrote it, then Jesus, who is God in flesh, is not, can't come to abolish the Old Testament, but to fulfill it, to actualize it, to actualize everything that is to happen that's spoken of in the Old Testament. We don't treat the Old Testament that way. 
In the mainstream church, we do not treat the Old Testament that way. I've heard faithful preachers say, well, we're New Covenant Christians, therefore we just preach the New Testament. That is exactly against what Jesus is saying here. Did you know the Old Testament is three quarters of your Bible? And if you don't have the Old Testament, it'd be like this. It's like tying your, your, one of your arms and your two legs behind your back and trying to understand who God is and what he is doing in the world. You can't understand the New Testament without the Old Testament. It's a story. We talked about this, right? Kingdom through covenant. It's a story. It has a storyline. You have the Old Testament without the New. You have a plot, but you have no climax. You have the New Testament without the Old. You have a climax without a plot. You need both to understand, and you need to read the the story in line, right? Starting from the old into the new. Otherwise, there's a lot, even as we've seen in Matthew, Matthew's quoting like every other verse. And the, the epistles do this. And Revelation does this. They all do this, right? They're all looking back to the authority and ongoing significance of the scriptures to understand what's going on. And so you leave out the Old Testament, you don't understand the Old Testament, you're going to miss a lot. You're going to have a stunted Christian life. Let me put it that way. You're going to have a stunted Christian life, which is why I am committed to preaching and teaching the Old Testament. That's what, I'll let you in on a secret. That's one of the reasons I went to Matthew, right? Because Matthew like, takes us back to the Old Testament like a ton to give you and build your understanding of the Old Testament so that you guys can grow. And that's what I am committed to. So I hope we get to an Old Testament book after Matthew. We'll see. We'll see what we need to do. But the point, but the point is... The point is, they still have ongoing authority and significance because all things haven't happened yet, because heaven and earth are still in place. And so we need to, they are worthy of our attention, and we need to come, come back to it. And then second, we've already kind of said this, but so you need to recognize that all the Old Testament uh, scriptures are authoritative and significant and worthy of our attention. But then we already said this, right? Uh, Jesus is claiming, I'm going to fulfill it all. I'm going to actualize it all. Which you should just kind of be blown away by that statement and marvel at who Jesus is and worship him for him being the one who's actualizing every little thing that's written in the Old Testament scriptures. He's going to actualize all of history. Which that's an encouraging statement, isn't it? As we think about our world. Our world is a mess. Right? We... Uh, we have a society in which um, murder is legal, it's lauded, the family is undermined. We have the, 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 the audacity to claim that individuals are self-autonomous and therefore can decide their own gender. They can decide what they're going to do with their lives. Individuals are not autonomous. They are under God and under his rule. But here's the thing, right? If you just meditate on how messed up things are, you're going to be very depressed unless you come back to truths like this, that Jesus is the actualizer, the fulfiller of all of history, and he wins. He wins, and it gives us hope in the midst of darkness. It gives us hope in the midst of darkness to be faithful and to be faithful to what we're called to do. So first, what we've seen is recognize the Old Testament's ongoing authority, verses 17 and 18. Now it gets even trickier. Verses 19 through 20. Do and teach God's law from the heart. Do and teach God's law from the heart. Look at verse 19. Therefore, big word. Uh, one of the things you should recognize when you read scriptures is that some of the most important words are conjunctions, things that link ideas together. How are ideas related? Well, here's a big one, therefore. Therefore stresses continuity with what was just said. And it also stresses an implication of what Jesus just said. What did Jesus just say? He just taught about the ongoing authority and significance of the Old Testament. And now he draws an implication. Therefore, Whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments. Pause. Which commandments is he talking about? Well, if he's drawing an implication from what he just said, 
And what he just was talking about was the Old Testament, then it follows that he's talking about Old Testament commands. It follows that he's talking about Old Testament commands. These commandments, the ones in the law and the prophets. Remember we said that he's talking about content first and foremost. So he's talking about everything in the Old Testament, but part of that content is the law, the Mosaic law, other commandments that God gave Israel. And not just Israel, other people as well. And he's talking now specifically about commandments and the commandments that are in the Old Testament. Therefore, whoever relaxes, looses, loosens it up, uh, one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. Now, remember who he's talking to. He's talking primarily, first and foremost, to his disciples and secondarily to the broader audience of the crowds. But he is talking to his disciples. It's a warning. He's telling them, don't loose one of the least of the Old Testament commands or teach others to do the same. Why? What's the implication? You'll be called least. See the pairing there? The least of the commands and the least in the kingdom of heaven. Now, notice what he didn't say. He didn't say you're not in the kingdom of heaven. He said you're going to be called least in the kingdom of heaven. Remember what the kingdom of heaven is. It's the kingdom program that God has had from Genesis to Revelation. It's the kingdom program in which he has a steward king, starting with Adam, and then ultimately in Christ as the Davidic son over all of the world. It's the kingdom authorized by heaven. It's the kingdom sourced in heaven. It is a physical, tangible kingdom that will come on this earth in the future. It's not spiritual, primarily. It has spiritual components to it, but it will come, actually, in the future with Jesus reigning over all. And he's saying, if you loose the Old Testament commandments, you're going to be called least in the kingdom of heaven. And he has a corresponding idea, but, contrast, whoever does them, does the Old Testament commandments, and teaches them, teaches the Old Testament commandments, will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. Now, the categories he's just talked about, the folks are in the kingdom of heaven. They're going to experience it. But there's different levels of, I don't know, uh, there's different different levels of citizenship, so to speak. There's least and there's great. That's what he says. That's what he says. And it's based on, are you obeying the Old Testament commands? Now, I'm going to keep, you're like, I hope a lot of you are feeling really uncomfortable at this point. You should be. Um, but let's keep seeing what Jesus is saying, right? Let's unpack it all and see where we're going. Just like what happened in verses 17 through 18, he supports what he just said. Verse 20. For, support for what I just told you. I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds. Now, what's he talking about? Your righteousness. He's been talking about Old Testament commands. He's been talking about righteousness all along. This is the righteousness that you do. This is the concrete righteousness that as a disciple of Christ, the good works is what he phrased it in 5.16, right? Let your light shine before men. They may see your good works. It's synonymous with this idea of righteousness, a concrete righteousness that Jesus' disciples will have. Looking back up to the Beatitudes, right? Practice your righteousness. Those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. He's talking about righteous action, Unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Who's he talking to? He's talking to his disciples, first and foremost. And then he's talking secondarily to the crowds that are kind of there. They're interested. They're not, uh, we're not sure yet if they're actually followers of Christ. Now that is an amazing statement. What did Jesus just say? Unless your righteous action exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Now, the first two categories, you're in, you may be called least. You're in, you may be called great. Here, you're not even in. You're not even in. And by implication with what he just said, 
the scribes and Pharisees aren't in, are they? You see that implication from the text that you, your righteousness needs to exceed that of the scribes and Pharisees or you never get into the kingdom of heaven. Now, that gives us the clue to understand what Jesus is getting at. Turn over to Matthew 23. What is the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees? Now, really quickly, just to give you a little background, the scribes had an official function, both of, yes, copying God's law, but also of understanding it and teaching it. They had a teaching function in that society. They were to teach all the Old Testament. They were to teach the commands. They were to help the people understand how to obey God's law. The Pharisees, uh, they didn't really have an official capacity uh, per se. They were more of a movement. Uh, but they were a movement that were, they were strict. Both the scribes and the Pharisees were really strict on obeying God's law. Even the, the scribes and Pharisees, what they would do is say, well, we don't even want to get close to dis, uh, uh, disobeying God's law. So what we're going to do is we're going to put some fences. We're going to put some fences around the law. Uh, we're going to put extra kind of uh, good ideas, or even they would uh, traditions, so that I don't even get close to obeying God's law. I want to keep as far away from breaking God's law as possible. And they would teach the people in this way, strict observance to the law. But, you know, so in these people's minds, they think of a scribe or a Pharisee, they're like, they're the, those are like the top. Those are like the most righteous people we know of. But see how Jesus characterizes them in at least the first few verses of Matthew 23, and we get a sense of what Jesus is trying to say back in Matthew 5. Then Jesus said to the crowds and to his disciples, the scribes and the Pharisees sit on Moses' seat. They have a teaching authority. Uh, they're teaching you the law, and they're helping you to apply it. So do and observe what they tell you, but not the works that they do. For they preach, but they do not practice. They tie up heavy burdens hard to bear and lay them on people's shoulders but they themselves are not willing to move them with their finger. They do all their deeds to be seen by others, for they make their phylacteries broad and their fringes long, and they love the place of honor at feasts and the best seats in the, of the synagogues and greetings in the marketplaces and being called rabbi by others. And then he goes on through the rest of the chapter, and he just rails against the scribes and the Pharisees. And what he rails against is essentially what you start to see here in the first few verses you have an external righteousness. You have an external conformity that looks really good, but your insides are full of, he's, you know, he talks about the outside of the dish is clean, the inside is full of greed and self-indulgence. You look like a beautiful tomb on the outside, but inside it's full of dead men's bones. So what is he talking about back in Matthew 5 about the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees He's talking about a righteousness that is merely external. Or you could put it this way. It's a righteousness that looks at the letter of the law and says, well, that's what I need to do, and I'm good. Right? That's what I need to do, and I'm good in God's sight. And Jesus says, if you have a righteousness like that, you aren't getting in. Your righteousness needs to exceed that. In what sense? Coming from the heart. Coming from the heart. And here's where we need to take a little bit of an aside and a big picture of God's word about the law and about God's commands. Did you know that the law predated the fall? The law predated the fall. How do I know that? Well, one reason I could uh, say that is every manifestation of God's law is rooted, it comes from God, right? And it comes from his standard of goodness. Now, let me ask you, does God's standard of goodness, his morality, ever change? No, he better not. Otherwise, we're in trouble. Right? God has an unchanging, eternal, moral character. Every manifestation of the law that you see in scriptures is based in and rooted in God's eternal moral character. And it starts from the beginning. Turn to Genesis 1.28. I want you to see this. Genesis 1.28. God makes man and woman 
And he's giving them this commission, the kingdom commission, really, to be the stewardship rule under God, right? The, the thing that really sets the trajectory of all of the rest of Scripture. But notice, as part of that, Genesis 1.28, God blessed them. God said to them, be, be fruitful and multiply. That's a command. That's an imperative. And fill the earth. That's an imperative. And subdue it. That's an imperative. And have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the earth, birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. That's an imperative. That's law. That's command. Turn over to Genesis 2.15. Yahweh God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and keep it. And Yahweh God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it you shall surely die. That is law. That is commandment pre-fall. And this gets us the idea of what the law is through Scripture. The word for law in the Old Testament is Torah. You may have heard that before. The word, it's not really law in the sense of we think of a legal code, although it does have legal aspects of it. The word foundationally means instruction. Instruction. And so even, and and that instruction, and even those legal commands are rooted in God's character. Uh, Notice in the creation account, right? God created by grace. He didn't have to create man and woman at all, but he did to have an intimate fellowship and union with him and to even have responsibility over the created world. But they need some instruction about how that's supposed to look. So he gives them commands. Commands that are good, commands that are to instruct them in this relationship. Now, What's preceded? The relationship preceded command, didn't it? Creating Adam and Eve by grace preceded command. And that's always God's intent with the law. Uh, you can even look in Genesis uh, 26, 1 through 5. You don't have to do that there. I've given you a bunch of verses in your bolt, and you can look up later if you care to. But Genesis 26, 1 through 5 talks about how Abraham obeyed God's law, commandments, statutes, ordinances, all words talking used later for God's law. Now, how, how was Abraham supposed to do that? Because Moses wasn't even born yet. Because it's rooted in God's eternal moral character. Abraham already had a relationship with God, and he was able to obey God's desires from the heart. He already had a relationship with God. Romans 2.14-16 through 16 says that God has left witness of his law on every individual's conscience. Well, people basically know right from wrong. They choose to do wrong, right? But God has left himself a witness. What is that witness rooted in? God's eternal moral character. But God's design for the law is relationship first, then command. Relationship first, then command. Turn to Deuteronomy 6, the heart. You know, Deuteronomy, it's the second giving of the law or the restatement of the law. And it deals with the heart over and over and over and over again. It deals with the heart. Listen to this. Deuteronomy 6, 4 through 9. Hear, O Israel, Yahweh our God, Yahweh is one. Now, there's relationship already there. Yahweh is Israel's God. How is, uh, how is Yahweh Israel's God? Well, by covenant with Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, but also because he just redeemed them from Egypt. He pulled them out by grace. The relationship is already there by grace. And what does he say? There's actually a conjunction in the original. And so you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. And so these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. You see, relationship precedes command. And this is the problem even in Deuteronomy uh, in the, the manifestation of the law that God points to. Circumcise your heart because you're going to fail if you don't. Relationship precedes command. You need to obey from the heart. Even uh, in Deuteronomy 30, verses 1 through 10, very key text for uh, the unfolding of Scripture, 
talks about how, all right, Israel, you're going to experience all the blessings, all the curses. And after that happens, I'm going to circumcise your heart as a nation, as a people to obey my commands, which think back to what we just said about Jesus actualizing everything that's in the law and the prophets. That's a prediction, isn't it? A prediction that Israel and the nations would obey God's commands, his law, which is exactly how the prophets later talk about it. Isaiah 42, 1 through 4, speaking of the suffering servant, it says the coastlands wait for his law, the servant's law. But then here's the key crux that for, for us in the Old Testament and in the new is the new covenant. Jeremiah, turn to there, Jeremiah 31, 31 through 34. Listen to this. And this makes sense of what Jesus is saying in the Sermon on the Mount. Jeremiah 31, 31. Behold, the days are coming, declares Yahweh, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant that they broke, though I was their husband or their master, declares Yahweh. So, new covenant versus Mosaic covenant, okay? It's the contrast there. But listen to this. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel. And after those days, declares Yahweh, I will put my law within them. And I will write it on their hearts. And I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother, saying, Know Yahweh, for they shall all know me. From the least of them to the greatest, declares Yahweh. For I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sin no more, which is exactly the backdrop for Jesus coming. Jesus is the mediator of the new covenant. He is anointed by the Spirit, and he is going to bring about the new covenant. And the new covenant doesn't do away with law. It embeds it within the heart. It embeds it within the heart so that people obey from the heart. And how does that happen? We see in Ezekiel 36, 25 through 27, that happens through the Spirit indwelling each and every new covenant member to cause them to obey God's law from the heart, not just the letter. And now we go back to Matthew 5. That's what Jesus is talking about. That's what Jesus is talking about. You see, if you think about the law as God's commands, everyone in the sinful state does one thing with the law. They take the law, God's good law, because it's rooted in his internal moral character, and what they do is they try to appropriate it and say, well, in order for me to be right with God, I need to do those commands. So what's going on there? Commandment precedes relationship. Do you see the difference? Everything in the Old Testament... Even at the beginning, pre-fall, relationship precedes command. But here, what happens in fallen human nature is what we do is we say, hey, there's the law, so if I want to get in God's good graces, i got to keep that first to have a relationship. It's reversed. And the reversal, where command precedes relationship, is called legalism. That's what we mean by legalism. Legalism is not about keeping laws or rules. Legalism is about saying, I can obey God's rules in order to, to have a relationship with him. And that's the sort of thing that the scribes and Pharisees were doing, and that's the sort of thing that Jesus is speaking against. But what is he speaking for? He's speaking for the reality of the new covenant. His disciples, once they repent, they turn allegiance from sin and self, they entrust themselves to Christ, they entrust themselves to God, and eventually, after Pentecost, right, the Spirit comes and indwells these people to cause them to obey God's law. Relationship precedes command. Which is why he can say, speaking to his disciples, you need a righteousness exceeding that as the scribes and Pharisees to enter the kingdom of heaven. It's why he can say that you must, right, uh, you must do, right, he's motivating in verse 19, to not loose the commands, but keep them. Even the Old Testament commands from the heart. 
You're like, wait a minute. So does that mean I can't have a bacon, che- bacon a cheeseburger this afternoon? Right? Because it's got pig in it. Right? I have to obey the law? No. Because what it's not what Jesus is after is the heart, not the letter. But what's true is that even those laws that talk about the food, those things in Leviticus that seem like, oh man, this has nothing to do with me. Well, actually they do. Because what's the principle? What's the heart behind the command? Because that heart behind the command, the letter, so to speak, the spirit behind the command is God's heart. And God's character is unchanging and eternal. And so what Jesus is leading his disciples to, you think about, think about the first century. Think about Jesus' disciples. Their Bible was the Old Testament. They didn't have the epistles yet. So how do they know how to do, we need instruction. How, okay, God's changed us, but how do I, how do I grow? How do I, how do I change? Well, how do I do what God calls me to do? Go to the law. Go to the law for instruction, not because you're under the old covenant, but because the old covenant expresses God's heart and you can learn from it and you can follow God from the heart. And that's what Jesus is aiming at. So I can eat pork, I can eat bacon, but what was that command about? That command was about holiness in the minutia of life separation to God. Well, that principle is still very much in play, isn't it? And that's what Jesus is speaking to. And even this, what he's talking about when he says, uh, for I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Do you need righteousness to enter the kingdom of heaven? Yes. You need a righteous life to enter the kingdom of heaven. You need to obey God's commands to enter the kingdom of heaven not as a foundation for the relationship, but as a result of the relationship. I love it because John the Baptist and Jesus give us an analogy that really helps us, the tree and the fruit analogy. Remember the tree and the fruit analogy? Every good tree bears good fruit. Every bad tree bears bad fruit. Now, here's, here's what legalism tries to, to, try to do. I'm going to take some good fruit, and that's going to produce a good tree. I'm going to, what? I'm going to take a good fruit, and that's going to build a good tree. That doesn't make any sense. It's the exact opposite. A good tree produced in relationship by grace to God produces good fruit. We don't rely on the law. Reliance on the law is legalism. We keep the law as a result. Or another way to say it, law-keeping for a Christian is necessity of result not necessity of basis. If I say necessity of basis, it's necessary for me to keep the law to have a relationship with God, I'm a legalist. But if I say, because of God's grace of giving me a relationship with him that changes me by a gift, not by merit, my whole life, then there must be some fruit, just like you have a good tree and it must produce fruit. Necessity of result, not as a gift, not necessity of basis, which is legalism. Think of the tree. So how do we, and you may still have questions like, well, wait a minute. So how would it be, how can I learn from the Old Testament law? How can I do that? Well, good, good thing that Jesus gives us several examples in the coming weeks, because that's exactly what he's going to do. What he's going to do is he's going to select out a command And what he's contrasting is not him versus Moses. He's not contrasting him versus Moses. He's contrasting him versus the teaching of the scribes and Pharisees. He's contrasting him versus the teaching of the scribes and Pharisees. And he's going to walk us through different commands, and he's going to drive to the heart, which is always what the law was supposed to do. Obedience from the heart, that's always what God wanted. So how do we apply this? Well, first, external righteousness alone, not coming from a new heart. You may do the rules. You may do the letter. Even in a church, you may come to church. You may sit here. You may listen to sermons every week. And you can look pretty good on the outside, but God knows your heart. 
And unless your righteousness exceeds that of external conformity, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. And what you need to do if you find yourself in that state where I have external righteousness only is you need to repent and entrust yourself to Christ who alone can be your righteousness in your place and can produce through the Spirit good fruit in your life. Second, beware legalism which tries to say, my performance, my conformity to God's law earns my relationship with God. We do this as Christians. I've, I've, I've done all I'm supposed to do. I came to church. I did my quiet time. I prayed. Therefore, God must be pleased with me. That is a legalistic heart. Rather than saying, Christ has done everything for me. He has bought my station with the Father. I am his. He loves me. Therefore, I want to obey him, which is the gospel heart. Beware legalism. And then this, pursue righteousness as the necessary fruit of being a disciple of Jesus in the new covenant. Necessary by result, produced by the Spirit. It's not a meritorious righteousness, it's a gift by the Spirit. And we pursue these things. We pursue these things dependent on the Spirit, depending on the reality that I'm a new covenant believer to do them. And do what Jesus says. Do and teach the Old Testament commands, pursuing the timeless principle representing the heart of God. You're going to have to change the application. You can eat bacon cheeseburgers, but you, but you need to understand why did God issue that command, because that expresses the heart of God. Pursue the timeless principle and learn from it. And Really, if we were to say it this way, we need commands as believers. You see, there's a sort of Christianity that goes out there that says, well, yep, I believed in Jesus, I'm good, I don't need any other instruction. I'll just kind of go by my feelings. We can't go by our feelings, they're corrupt. We have a deceitful heart, so what do we need? We need instruction, we need the law, rightly understood, rightly depended upon by the Spirit in the new covenant purchased by the blood of Christ on the cross. That is what Jesus is getting at. So do and teach God's law from the heart to be called great in the kingdom of heaven. Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you for your instruction. We need help, Lord, because we want to obey you. We love you. We thank you that we do not have to keep the law to earn a relationship with you, but you've brought us into a relationship so that we can keep the law. We can follow your eternal moral character, Lord God, because of the spirit you've given us. So I just pray for this week that we would grow in righteousness because we love you, because of the relationship you've purchased for us by grace. Lord, help us to understand, even in coming weeks, how to how to rightly handle the Old Testament and how to rightly handle the Old Testament law and to learn from it to learn your heart, Lord God, and to follow you. Lord, we pray these things, we ask them, we ask for your glory through our obedience. In Christ's name, amen.